Stay hungry, stay foolish. 59% of U.S. workers say that communication is their team's biggest obstacle to success, followed by accountability at 29%. Today's book explains a simple, powerful tool that helps team leaders and members align to get clarity on exactly who is responsible for each part of the team's most important activities and projects. With the guidance of today's book, you can be better prepared as a team leader or team member to plan effectively, reduce risks, and collaborate with others. Your team will be accountable and ready to deliver results. We welcome author of High Impact Tools for Teams, Five Tools to Align Team Members, Build Trust, and Get Results Fast. And I love this name, Stefano Mastro Giacomo. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Aidan. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I was telling you, I was practicing. I listened to, as a little kind of a mental break, a mental amuse-bouche, I listened to some uh, Pavarotti, and he inspired me to pronounce your name the best I, I could, man. Yeah, that's some music I listen to as well when I need inspiration. It's great to have you. Uh, just for our audience, I have a copy up for grabs of this beautiful book. It's part of the Strategizer series, so all you can expect from the Strategizer crew, beautiful animations, beautiful illustrations, and lots of figures, lots of mental models for you to get your head around. So if a copy up for grabs, just sign up to the innovationshow.io to be in with a chance to win that. Stefano, you open up the book by saying, teams underperform when members work around each other and not with each other. Sometimes something that happens when the team climate is unsafe and the team activities are poorly aligned. Your key, your key learning through your work over decades working with organizations and in change yourself shows that failure is largely dependent on how well we manage our day-to-day -day interactions on two levels. One is team activities and two is team climate. I'm setting you up there perhaps to set some context for this book. It's based on true years of experience delivering mostly digital projects in large organizations and working in between the different silos. Uh, to deliver so-called cross-functional projects. And over the years, what I have noticed is that when I was in trouble and my team was in trouble and we had a hard time delivering, it was very rarely because of technology. <laughs> uh, the challenges we had were mostly related to us and the way we interacted at these two levels. So if you wish, uh, a project digital or an innovation journey, whatever you want to deliver as a team, um, is a kind of macroscopic view. It's a view from the sky. Interaction is what happens when we are in a meeting, when we talk to each other at the cafeteria or at our desk. That's where things happen. And what I've learned over time in reflecting, I, I spent more than five years thinking about my own failures and IT project failure in general. Uh, at the University of Lausanne, and um, we realized that uh, if you perform like the five wise questions, you know, why does is the sponsor not involved? Why did the server crash? And so on and so on. You just do that like five times, and then inevitably the roads were leading to these two challenges. One is, do we really understand each other? which is, are we aligned on what you do and what I will do and what we are supposed to do together? So is there enough shared understanding in the air? And the answer was no. <laughs> so actually, I realized uh, over time that we were delivering projects surrounded by perception gaps. And that is the challenge number one. The consequence of these perception gaps is that you believe, you presuppose, uh, that you understand what I understand. And it's not the case. So you do your part, I do my part, and then they don't fit together because we've been both presupposing. So uh, lack of uh, mutual understanding uh, creates execution problems. And that was the challenge number one. The challenge number two is that... Um, this idea that when you open the door, uh, well, or when you meet people online now in Zoom, uh, you can sort of feel the atmosphere of the team. 
You know, sometimes when you just connect with people online and you, you, you can see like some cameras are off, some people don't speak, and it, it's kind of heavy. <laughs> well, it took some time to discover the work of Amy Edmondson and on trust and psychological safety and what happens in a room when people don't speak up. And that is the other big, big uh, challenge for teams is when the team climate is unsafe, is when I don't feel like uh, this is a safe place for me to take risks. And that's a big problem that generates many other ones uh, uh, as a consequence of a cascading effect. Uh, if I don't speak up, I don't share maybe important opinion, we don't build on each other's different point of views, so basically we're alone together. And uh, then we all work very hard, but as individuals, part of uh, a constellation of other individuals. But that's not teaming up. And that is very complicated. Uh, it's very complicated to innovate when there is a lack of safety in the team uh, because we don't sparkle collective learning processes which come from realizing that we've done a mistake, then we seek feedback, and we have all these learning behaviors that enable complex problem solving. So if you wish, um, one of the big ideas behind the book is uh, that success happens in the small, when we talk, especially when we talk with people, and that there are two areas in which we have to be very attentive and stop presupposing that it's okay. We tend to neglect the fact that there are perception gaps of what we have to do, for, with whom, for one. And the other one is that we have to take care of the atmosphere in the team to enable innovation. And um, that being said, it's kind of the foundation of the book. Then so what? <laughs> so what? Then we spent quite some time with amazing, the amazing strategizer team developing tools just to do that. And not to do that from a conceptual standpoint. It's like it's a poster, you put it in the room, and boom, here we go. But that's what I love about your work, because not only did you do that to make it applicable and put it into practice, but you, you, because you mentioned there the mistakes you made, you have the scar tissue of understanding when things go awry and how you can be very, very busy, but not aligned on that busyness. And that was your own experience in digital transformation. I'd love if you took us through that, because that, I suppose that's when the seed for this was planted, unbeknownst to you, you didn't know that it would manifest years later in this book. <laughs> it's like being a fish in the water. Are we aware? Is the fish aware that uh, there is water around him, you know, uh, and, and, and the same for us. We, we are surrounded by communication and we take for granted that communication works. A lot of the journey in designing the tools in High Impact Tools for Team is, um, has come from realizing that most of us, the if not the vast majority, presupposes that communication is successful. So that, okay, here is the project. And then, so if you wish, because we presuppose that, we don't check evidence of understanding. Are we sure we're on the same page? Because we have too much work. So I rush on my tasks, you rush on your tasks, I send you a quick note, and I don't check <laughs> if that note has been correctly understood because I have other priorities. Well, actually, we are creating our own problems <laughs> with that because if we don't check that validation of understanding, then you might understand something that is quite different. And then when do we have a surprise? When we meet next time. And I was expecting something you haven't done for me and vice versa. So um, that in digital journeys, because everything goes so fast, because we have our bucket list that is so full, the backlog is huge. I remember working with a team like they had 400 years of work ahead <laughs> for 10 people. I mean, okay, so, and it's so logged in issues in super software like Jira and documented in Confluence, which is another software for uh, digital teams. It's all well documented, but I mean, people haven't read it. So <laughs> uh, I, I just want to slow down things a little bit here. Uh, innovation is delivered by people. So, um, 
we have great frameworks and tools to deliver, design, create new products and services, imagine new companies, and Strategizer has done an amazing work in developing canvases for that. But in our discussions with, with Alex, we were really thinking we, sh we should do something for teams, the teams themselves, so that we nurture these two things, like mutual understanding, stop with the perception gaps, because that costs a lot of money and time. Because if you work hard to deliver a piece of work and I do the same, and then they don't fit together, okay, we've been working hard, but the impact has been quite low. So what can we do to improve mutual understanding rapidly for any team, mostly in innovation, because that's the field we're in. And, but in the same way, um, what can we do to improve uh, the, uh, the trust aspect in the team? Because, you know, um, projects today, project work, is surrounded by uncertainty. We're all into innovation, so by definition, when we start a project, we are all non-experts <laughs> because it's never been done before. So we're all juniors. So if we're not allowed to fail and we can, you know, and then there is finger pointing and so on, uh, then the, the innovation machine from a human standpoint gets broken. So again, uh, reflecting on this, designing and testing these tools with uh, hundreds of teams today, uh, has been a great and refreshing journey. Um, it started, but we started by applying these tools for ourselves. We saw the results, then other people and other teams wanted to use them, and that's how, how actually it became a book. Just going back to your own experience, I often think about how how much more difficult it is for a legacy organization that's going through transformation versus a, a startup because a startup starts with the canvas they start we'll go to it in a second the team alignment map they start with that the vision but the other organization has to reinvent and still keep the legacy organization running to power the new one what about your experience there well there are pros and cons in both scenarios let, let, let's just take them uh, one after the other so in large organizations uh, the big, huge blessing <laughs> is that you have resources <laughs> to deliver your projects. Uh, again, where if I think in terms of aligning with each other, where I see challenges is in this idea of agreeing on um, the objectives of anything we want to deliver together. So there are tensions because I, I think we should do that, and another person thinks we should do that, and so on. So there is this alignment in, in terms of um, objectives and also commitments. Who is doing what? Because in an established organization, we have a lot on our plate because there, we have to run the existing business. And project work always loses if, when compared to operational work. Operations work a lot. We win all the time. So, um, but there are resources. So we can buy time, we can uh, hire talent, find uh, what we miss to deliver a project. So most of the discussion, if I, I take the team alignment map, which is a poster where we discuss basically each person's contribution, we clarify each person's contribution to a project. In large corporations where I see the most discussion is around the mission itself of a project, of any project and the concrete deliverables and objectives and who's doing what. But the other columns like um, uh, the resources and risks, which are part of the poster, uh, are not so much as an issue as they are in startups. In startups, on contrary, uh, and th I, I believe Alex is not uh, uh, a stranger to that, uh, uh, startups today have very good missions, <laughs> very well-defined, great <laughs> business models in place when they start. But these are ideas on paper. They might be super good, but 90% of projects fail in the execution phase. So uh, then you have to translate that into concrete action. So uh, if I take the four columns of the team alignment map, when I see discussions in startups, so like the mission is clear, the contribution of every person in terms of objectives and who's doing what is also negotiated much faster. 
But where it becomes a problem is uh, the, the other con. It's like uh, talking about missing resources and the risks that we uh, might uh, encounter in our journey. So these are mostly the two differences. Now, when it comes to implement change, and that was the uh, start, the, 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 your initial question, or transforming an environment, it's true that starting with a blank slate, there is not so much to transform. It's about creating. So these tools accelerate. I think about the team alignment map and the team contract, which is another tool presented in the book to align on the behaviors. They accelerate uh, the ability of any team to deliver with impact. In an organization, in an established organization, in a large group, um, I, I've rarely seen a top-down approach of implementing these changes. Actually, what seems to work best is the organic transformation. So you have one team starting using these tools at the team level. Then they start having good results. The atmosphere gets better. Then the next team wants to copy. And, and then, oh, what's that? And, 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 and so on. And then you have all these bubbles everywhere that, 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 that sparkle and connect. Uh, and that's how it's transformed. It's more like an organic bottom-up change. Uh, 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 approach of change. I actually just wrote an article and I called this effect the, the curtain twitcher effect. You know, you know when the neighbors looks out to go, what, what's Stefano up to? What's he, he got a new car. You know when they, they twitch the curtain. I was thinking that that's actually what happens in organizations if somebody's using the teen alignment map and the other silo look and go, hey, how come they're getting so much results and so much attention from leadership. And then they'll copy, you know, they'll copy that behavior. But there's something you said there that um, I thought was really valuable about the legacy organization needs to reinvent, but the, the startup needs to create. And I, I, I often think about this like the legacy organization is like a sculptor. So they need to take away to let the statue emerge from the block of wood or block of stone versus the startup or the new organization is like a painter it's a blank canvas and i can create and that's why it's so much easier to put something onto a canvas because it, it's a bias towards action but coming back to the team alignment map what what we what we we talked about at the start i just want to bring our audience back on that journey so the number one goal is alignment and psychological safety They're, these are the two things we want to create and to enable alignment you introduce the TAM, the team alignment map. It's behind you for those who are watching us on YouTube. I'd love if you took us through the different columns and maybe starting with the idea of mission, what it is. You know, you say, for example, don't have, you know, a typical TAM will have three to 10 missions on it, for example. So perhaps we'll bring our audience on that journey. So the TAM is a poster that is used to plan together. It's a co-planning tool that is used in short alignment sessions. So um, if you're familiar with project management, consider that as a communication plugin that works with any method. So whether you're agile or waterfall, um, whatever the methodology you're implementing. And the idea is that we sit in front of that poster and we reach evidence of understanding about what we're going to do. Sessions usually last 30 to 60 minutes. And once we're aligned, if we're aligned, we're aligned. We don't need that anymore. Okay. Uh, then we can jump uh, into other uh, and actually act as a team. So um, the exercise, the alignment exercise is successful if we agree on uh, fa four important requirements for team coordination. Uh, four plus one. So I'll start with the plus one, which is the mission, which is to describe in a very synthetic way, why we are collaborating. Otherwise, you, you do your business, I do my business. I mean, we are, we are, we're all busy. So the why is the overarching objective of the project and the glue that binds the team together. So uh, how are we going to whatever uh, uh, implement or develop a new software on the Apple Store or how are we going to build this house or just the mission for the team. And right there, there are initial problems. Some people think that the mission should be that, and some others think that it should be another. So, but sometimes people get aligned fast on the mission. Now, 
Once we agree on the mission, we have to start discussing concretely. Concretely means who's doing what, uh, for when, and so on. So the first column is called joint objectives. And that's where we, as a team, and it's important that all the key stakeholders participate in that conversation. So this is not something you do and then you share with the team. It's a co-planning tool. The, the collective power f- comes from the fact that we've been discussing these things together. So first column is what do we intend to achieve concretely? And we describe that uh, rapidly in terms of deliverables, uh, in terms of activities. I want to do that. We should do that. And once we are aligned on the first column, okay, so if we want to deliver these things, uh, we move to the second column, which is called joint commitment. So uh, these, the activities and the joint objectives we agreed won't happen alone. Someone has to do them. And next to each objective, we place the commitment that team members agree to, 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 to take to uh, make these things happen. So if, for example, we have an objective that is uh, perform client interviews, then Stefano agrees, commits to, to, to perform the client interviews. So we just put like my name next to the objective. And then if we, we have to write a report, which is another objective, then I then commits to write the report. Now, fine. First column, joint objective. Second, joint commitments. I want to interrupt because yeah. for the exact reason why you say this is important, I agree to the jo- to the commitment. And, and yeah. we do that in person. You know, I know it's we're in a virtual world, but where possible, I do that in person because you talk about that human aspect of the commitment is, is really important. I'd love if you'd share that because I think that's often overlooked because what people tend to do is send a follow-up document and then that leads to an email cascade. No commitment doesn't work like that. You know, I hear a lot of, I hear a lot sometimes when you talk with team leaders about team engagement, team commitment, and so on. And um, there is a like a one thousand page book written by uh, Margaret Gilbert, who's an anthropologist, called Joint Commitment. Super <laughs> complicated book. Uh, but, I prefer uh, your book, man. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, Joint Commitment comes from uh, agreeing. So the, the, it's, it's a compact. It's an agreement between you and me. So, and it comes from the fact that we've been discussing it. And it's binding, actually. If you, when you're, okay, I'll be there tomorrow at 10 if we are face-to-face, and then, boom. <laughs> so that's how human commit, by discussing. So that's why, again, I insist on the fact that at the beginning of projects, it's good to align face-to-face. And just the fact of you agreeing then creates the commitment in you because you made a promise. Then once we are okay with the promises... <laughs> Let's call them this way. In, so I'm in. I'm, okay, so I commit. That, that's the second column here. Then we move on with the discussion to the third column. All human activities use resources. Right now we're using time, uh, materials, equipment. I'm on a Mac, you're on a Mac too, I presuppose. Uh, 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 we're using communication software. So what resources do we need to be successful and to do our parts? And here we talk both uh, at the team level, what resources do we need as a team, but also at the individual level, because you committed, so you know what you need, (laughs) or you estimate. And then we make that explicit. And then, for example, the resources we have, we put them in green, and the resources we miss, we put them in red. Once we're okay, and that, that everyone has said, all key stakeholders, if you wish, I've had the opportunity to say, okay, to do my part, I need that, that, and that. Once it's out there, we move to the last column called joint risks because also all human activities carry a level of risk. Risk, remember the definition, is an unwanted event that might prevent us from succeeding. So what are the fears, the objection, the unintended consequences, what are the possible bugs? So we put them also all in the last column. When we, when we do that, before entering a project, we have described our collaboration. 
And so we actually, we literally are on the same page because we had a chance to discuss, negotiate, and so on. Now it's not enough. To close an alignment session, we must take care of the problems. And there are two kinds of problems. Um, one is the resources we miss, and the other one is the, can we do something to reduce the risks? So the, the first part of the exercise is called the forward pass, where we create the big picture together. And then we do the backward pass. The backward pass consists in uh, transforming the problems into new objectives and new commitment. So if you tell me that you need a budget of 10K to buy some software uh, to analyze your client data, then uh, if you don't have that, it's going to be difficult for you to do your part. So what can we do as a team to make this budget available? Let's say there is our boss in the room and the boss commits to find the budget before next week. So we remove or the missing resource and we transform that into find budget for next week, <laughs> Carl. <laughs> okay? And we do the same for risks. Um, for example, um, if we have to perform interview, one typical risk is that uh, clients are not available. What can we do to mitigate that risk? So for example, Samantha can commit to schedule all appointments ahead. And then we remove the risk and we've just created a new uh, uh, objective with a new joint commitment. So once that backward pass is performed, the team is in a far better shape to be successful. First of all, because we are on the same page as a team. We've been, an, uh, we've been discussing face-to-face. -face. We've been binding each other. We're going in the same direction. And also, we've been lowering the level of risks and we are realistic in terms of what we can do with the resources we have. I love this, um, Stefano, because of something you say, because you articulate this, but you see this when teams visually plot out their work, that you say fixing and removing problems visually together gives a sense of progression, motivation and engagement increase as participants see that the risks they described disappear because they are addressed properly because that's not often what happens and then they have this perception of disaster and it actually reduces their cognitive capacity as a result absolutely you know uh, to I'd like to add maybe two things if, if i'm allowed here uh, you have no idea the joy i can see in teams when um i don't know yasmin and uh, oliver have put some risks there and as a team they've been mitigated. And then you remove them from the poster. And then like you, you feel the energy go up because, and also it contributes to psychological safety because you feel like the team is like concerned <laughs> with that risk. So you really feel the level of, of energy go up. And I don't know if you're familiar with risk management. It's not the most sexy activity in the world. So uh, to, to make that playful and engaging, was one of the initial ideas uh, behind the team alignment map too. It's such an important thing. You mentioned a risk being not such a sexy thing, but actually the big thing I learned from your colleague and friend, Alex Osterwalder, that you mentioned earlier on, is that one of the jobs of an innovation team is to remove risk. Even if you prove something won't work, you could save, yeah, you're saving the company an absolute fortune by doing that. It's, it's a huge aspect of it. But... Um, so I, I wanted to bring us back to the kind of journey that I'm on. One of the, because uh, I'm really interested in this is great for a team that maybe is independent, but when the team has to operate within a large legacy organization, for example, and you mentioned the word constellation, which is great because it's, it's a network of team alignment maps, I thought. So how, how does that play out, Stefano? So the, the, the leadership team, the senior leadership team, SLT, have their map. They include the, the main stakeholders in that. And then each of the executive team use it with their teams and it trickles down. But, but how does that work with working up as well, for example? So say, for example, you have got buy-in. There's been the curtain twitcher effect and they're like, oh, Stefano's team's doing really well. They're using this thing, team alignment map. Let's do it. How does that work together as, a, as an organization trickling it out across the teams? Okay, so first and foremost, it takes 
leadership commitment to work at the organizational level. Um, when you don't have that, people are stuck in their priorities and other things. So like any new approach and a new method, there is not necessarily an appetite uh, nor a support for that. However, when there is leadership commitment, um, you have something like what happened next week in one of the workshops I facilitated. Uh, so this is the top management team um, of uh, an established Swiss company. The company is almost 200 years old. However, again, the top, the senior leadership is committed. So we have, so the, the, the <laughs> I describe in the book different techniques on how to align at the organizational level. The technique we applied last week was that um, uh, of uh, aligning in sub-teams and each team presenting to each other, the changing the impact that one team has on the other and so on, and have like that big structured conversation at the launch of a program. This again, you can do only when top leadership is committed. So here we go, 50 people, six topics, one day, and we enter into a clarification sprint. A lot of uncertainty in the morning. It's complicated for everyone. The challenges are not well articulated. However, we have these six topics that we want to address in the next 24 months as an organization. So let's bring all the key people in the room at the beginning, separate them by topic, give them the keys on how to align quickly with the team alignment map and the other tool we haven't talked about, which is the team contract. So um, this was done physically, actually, can be done virtually as well. And the teams, they have like two hours to clarify and um, using these templates. And then there is a round of presentations where the whole organization must listen. Well, when I say, I say the whole organization, it's the, the all team leaders must listen to the problems of others, as well as present what they're supposed to do. And then there is a Q&A, feedback session, then everyone can revise what they have prepared. And at the end of the day, you should have felt the energy <laughs> when we had to drink the drink, because it was clear for the senior leadership teams what the next 24 months would look like. You have no idea in large organizations how many people I meet that say, oh, priorities keep changing all the time, I don't understand why, and so on and so on and so on. It will not be the case for that team. I try to always wear a pin that reflects each show, Stefano, and this one says, uh, pointless meeting survivor. And <laughs> I thought, when, when, I, when I saw the, the book, I was like, this is great because you actually use the TAM also for meetings. So to run more productive, as you call them, move to action meetings. I thought we'd share this because this is something that anybody can put in place right today. Yes, absolutely. The TAM can be used at three different levels that reflect what we do as a team uh, or how we work. So one is when we have one meeting, just because we want to align for the week ahead, for example. And... Um, different techniques on how to use that at the team level. Now, it can be used also at the project level. A project, if you think about it, it's a series of meetings. And that's how the tool uh, is uh, used throughout the different meetings to maintain a level of alignment and integrating the new information. And it can be used also at the organizational level, uh, as we just discussed earlier. Um, the point is quite simple. Uh, meetings are boring. <laughs> when, <laughs> and, and actually, there is, you know, there is this study by Atlassian, <laughs> uh, the software company. Um, you can Google, you waste a lot of time at work. They uh, assembled a nice infographic where um, before this was before the pandemic, not, not so old, but before the pandemic, uh, where 50% of meetings were are, were considered by survey respondents as a pure waste of time and unproductive. One out of two. It's huge. And I guess me, even during the pandemic, it, could, it can have been worse uh, uh, just by Zoom. Why? Because they're not prepared. 
So how many times did you go to a meeting without understanding why, why you were invited? Yeah, no and, agenda. And no agenda and so on. So the team alignment map contributes to that when we have to get things done together as a team. It puts like a basic, simple structure in place. There is no escape. <laughs> I mean, if you go through the columns, someone will have to agree to do that and we have to align on what we do for when. So that's where the productivity comes from, just like having these canvases. That's why, again, uh, in, the, in the book as well, I, if my memory is correct, one of the first sentences there is in the introduction is, we believe in teams and we believe in tools. Why? Because they make meetings more productive. And just when you were talking about the four columns of the TAM, so the team alignment map, you also talk about a vertical line on each of them, which is a clarity uh, metric, essentially. So low clarity to high clarity. I thought that was really useful because the visual representation of that becomes really important. And that raises another question that may be in the mind of our audience is, okay, so we have, you know, when you start this journey first, you're going to have a lot of disagreement and people kind of go, oh, that shouldn't be on there, etc, etc. And, and we'll come back to, you know, the team behaviors and the team contract in a second. But how about that at the early stages before you've gone to team contract? The team alignment map can be used as an assessment system. The question is simple. Once we are aligned and we start working, alignment is constantly challenged as new information integrates the team and is integrated by team member. So we start being on the same page, but over time we lose our calibration. So you don't, know, you don't have necessarily the time to run a team alignment map session each week or because you know that is costly in terms of uh time and presence so um we imagined and tested and actually it worked quite well a way of assessing the trajectory of the team are we on the good path are we on a path to success in literally 10 seconds that happens by adding four scales to measure the perceptions of team members. So every team member is asked four questions that can be done with an online survey remotely. Question one is, are objectives still clear for me? And then you answer. It's like they're unclear or clear. Um, is my role and everyone's role clear or unclear for me? Do I still have the resources I need to do my part or do I now miss some resources to do my part? And is the level of risk under control or underestimated for me? If every team member responds, then what the, the, you can look at the perception gaps <laughs> in the responses. So if someone says the roles are super clear and someone says no, it's unclear, then you have a problem. Because again, the enemy here <laughs> in terms of uh, teamwork and project delivery is perception gaps when we are in the execution phase. So just by running this little survey, four little questions, if we are physically in the same room, we can do that on the poster. If we are working remotely, just like using Mentimeter or any online survey tool, uh, super fast. And as soon as there is perception gaps in the air, so your average for each variable is below a certain threshold, then we have to talk. And once we talk, we can repair problems before they happen. <laughs> because if we continue working on perception gaps, again, we fall back to square one. So I will do my part thinking what, presupposing what you do, you will do your part presupposing things I do, and then it won't match. So it's used as an assessment system. We, we assessed, maybe if I'm allowed, I can give you an example. Here we go, major European insurance company uh, launching a vast, you know, in insurance company, there is a lot of paper launching a vast digitalization project. Uh, four years, uh, super high budget in millions, in developers all over the world, and so on. The CEO was uh, into what we're discussing and decided uh, 
during one of their offsites to ask his top 300 managers, are we okay to launch this initiative? And so you can have 300 people going with a post-it note on a single poster. So this was done electronically. And we, the question was asked, you as a manager, do you believe you have everything you need to contribute successfully with your teams? And he asked the four questions to every person. And we watched the results live. The results were a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a pure disaster. So some believed it was clear. Some others said it wasn't clear. Some believed they have the resources. Some others don't. So he took the decision to, to postpone the launch of the initiative and run a series of clarification workshops to refine the objectives uh, of the program. And the good news is that the program started with a bit, some delay. It's been delayed. But he didn't lose his budget. <laughs> you know? And then they enter into a project with teams that were aligned and more uh, able to manage the complexity of that project. So it reminds me of uh, similar to what Alex is doing, like de-risk the project. Here you're de-risking the running of the project. Implementation, absolutely, absolutely. Because the tool works very well with the business model canvas, as you say, as well. It'd be, per perhaps it'd be useful to mention that. Yes, absolutely. So when you do your business model canvas, these tools, they perfectly work together. So uh, you have a the, the good way to start implementing your business model canvas is to start, for example, with the key activities you've listed and then start doing a team alignment map sessions for implementing these key activities. And then for the customer relationship activities as well or anything. So you start basically moving post-it notes from the business model canvas to a series of team alignment maps and the post-it notes from, well, the post-it notes, the sticky notes from the business model canvas mostly become missions on top of team alignment maps. And then as a team, we discuss who's going to do what. I wanted to come back to something we mentioned and, and uh, I, I wanted to tell you this, I played professional sport for 10 years and on two of the teams I played in, we used the team contract. So we, similar to right behind you there, the, the coach would just draw a circle and then go, wh wh what do we want to be known for? And we put up behaviors that we wanted to be known for, how we wanted to be seen by the, the, the fans, how did we want other players to see us, other teams, how do we want the press? To, you know, so it was all behaviors then that would be like, for example, punctual, uh, respectful to our teammates, uh, give it, a, give it all your energy when you were training. All these kind of things. Repair well, you know. Take it easy on alcohol. All these kind of things. But then we'd all sign. We'd sign the the contract as, at the end, and then that became almost like this straw man against which to compare yourself. And when when I saw your team contract, I was like, oh my god, that's it. But it but it's something that is so often overlooked within teams. And again, such a simple tool that we can use at any level. Absolutely. And, you know, m more and more it becomes difficult to work um, individually or in a like-minded team or, you know, we work with other specialists coming from other disciplines, other ways of working, other ways of thinking, uh, cross-cultural teams. Uh, and these are all sources of creativity but also all sources of friction. So you might want to spend some time in the beginning just making it clear. What are the rules of the game between us? What are the rules that we want to abide by as a team? And second, this is very important for the diversity and inclusion part, me as an individual, do I have some preferences to work in a certain way? And make that clear in the team from the beginning, in the team contract. What is in, what is out? in answering these two questions, you're in a far better shape also if you have that from the beginning than having everyone believing and presupposing that everyone else's the team is going to agree on what you do and how you behave. Uh, that simple tool, uh, at least in my, ex in my own experience and the testimonials I have, dramatically reduces the level of conflict once the project has started. It's normal. I, I usually compare that when I, in, my, in my workshops, I also use a sports metaphor. If you don't do the team contract and we all presuppose, 
it's like playing football without lines. <laughs> so you as a referee or when something like goes off track, <laughs> you, 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 you can shout as much as you want, but there is no line. So then, I mean, again, then you enter into, uh, you know, sterile conversation. Uh, whereas if we take that time to agree on the rules of the game and the principles of collaboration between us beforehand, then uh, we have that reference point. And it's been clear for everybody. And also that level of transparency um, is, is very good in, in terms of psychological safety. The fact that I understand how these teams, this team operate. The second question of the team contract is also triggers a kind of a user manual of me, of each team participant. So me, Stefano, I'm like Italians. I talk with my hand and I, you know, don't, don't be afraid of that. I like to talk like this or. Uh, another person might say something different. And so when you have this aggregation of principles right there, good things happen. But it's overlooked, it's not done, because, again, I, I believe, but this is a, a, an assumption, a personal belief, that mutual understanding, which has an impact on the team activities and psychological safety that has an impact on innovation, on team innovation, are neglected because it's kind of blind spots. Huh? I come back to the metaphor of the fish in the water. We're surrounded by, we presuppose that people understand us and we presuppose that there is trust in the air. And we have these blind spots and with these simple tools, we try to just like give a boost. <laughs> I love when then you bring it to first order and second order realities because this is the root of assumptions. And this makes another tool really important, an add-on tool that you present in the book, which is the fact finder tool to make sure that as I see it is as it really is. Yeah, the idea, if you, if you're, if you work in the innovation sector, uh, there is a lot of ambiguity and we all make assumptions about the future and um, we, we, we can, we can, quickly also as a team eh, become very quickly disconnected from reality reality is a series of observable observable facts so and assumptions judgments uh, or some limitations we have in our heads if they're not anchored into an observable observable fact we call them like second order realities because they're infinite i mean we can presuppose uh, on top of presuppositions, on top of presuppositions, and nothing is going to happen. So um, one, one important topic we addressed in the book, out of our own practice, huh, was the fact that we had to be able to ask good questions uh, when we were in meetings, because meetings are crucial. That's where we align, that's where we divide work, and that's where we integrate the parts. So this is a super crucial moment. And in these meetings, Whenever we feel we are lost in the conversation, we, we felt there was a need to have a, some kind of guidance to bring the conversation back in reality. So the fact finder is not, it's another tool presented in the book, as you mentioned, is not a poster, it's not something like where we sit together. It's a tool for you to be a more competent team member. Once you understand the logic, it helps you ask good questions. So... If someone tells you, oh, we don't want to come back to the corporate world. Uh, uh, no, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not in our DNA. <laughs> okay? That is a limitation. Then the fact finder suggests that you ask that person, um, okay, we don't work like this. And if we did, what would happen? Or what's preventing us from doing it? And by doing that, you, you kind of, bring back, try to understand uh, what, what, what are the obstacles, that, the concrete obstacles that that per person is trying to mention. And there are like five traps like these, communication traps, in which we most of, all fall, mo most of us fall. And uh, the fact finder gives repair questions, clarification questions you can use in meetings uh, on the fly, in real time. As you say, you adapt them then to your own language and the, not only your, your different nationality language, but the way you would present a question like that rather than being a robot as well. No, it's true. It's true. Because if, if you 
practice. Okay, these questions they come from NLP, neurolinguistic programming. We just, but the neurolinguistic program is a complex framework. We try to simplify that, go to the essence of what we need in project management, and in just like for regular teamwork. And um, if you use that, th there is a there is a um, there is a um, uh, uh, there is a, a pitfall. <laughs> To avoid, uh, if you use that too much, because th these are kind of interview techniques used by journalists, by police officers, by judges, so uh, or therapists. That that's that's the techniques they use. I if you use that too much, you might be perceived as intrusive. So because uh, you know everything is so yeah, when, what, how much, you know, <laughs> that's that that brings the conversation back to reality. So here the idea is that we, the use of that tool uh, is meant with a genuine attitude and almost a low profile. So if you use that tool with a low profile and a genuine attitude, you can bring back the conversation. But uh, it has to be used carefully. <laughs> that raises actually the, the other two tools that, that I thought we'd mention. And I, I'd love if we finished on maybe uh, Alan Fisk, the anthropologist, because I love that you include anthropology in here. And it's, it's, you know, you, you went wide innovation, as we say, happens at the intersections of knowledge and sharing ideas and neurodiversity, etc. You certainly demonstrated that with this book. But you mentioned there about even the language that I use, if it's very direct inquiry language, I can often if can feel to somebody like I'm offending them, or I can feel like I'm being too intrusive. And you rec recommend also other tools, which are the respect card. And then the equally important non-violent requests card. I'll start with the, the non-violent request guide. Um, cooperation and conflict are part of everyday life. Uh, it's okay to disagree. <laughs> that it actually, we want to diverge sometimes. Huh? That's where it's a big source of creativity. And <clears throat> when we work in projects, you know what happens when the deadline is coming. You know, <laughs> emotions can run high. What is not okay is to be, rela to, to be destructive at the relationship level when we disagree. And it's all a matter on how we express our disagreement. Uh, and I couldn't find a better framework than the nonviolent communication from uh, Marshall Rosenberg to um, kind of provide a simple way to channel negative emotions in, in a constructive way. Uh, and um, so this is a, um, a tool also to be used individually as a team member to prepare when we are in profound disagreement or upset. It's a way of expressing, being assertive, uh, uh, expressing our emotions without judging the other person. So that gives us the ability to be very clear, but also it gives a space to the other person to respond. So I can tell you, you're always late. <laughs> I can't count on you. Um, that would be perceived as an attack. And then an attack triggers a counterattack. And then we enter into a spiral. Uh, and when we enter into these types, uh, that type of conversation, trust me, it has a very negative impact on the project and the team. So whereas I could have said, uh, you know, when you do announce me at the last minute that uh, your code is not ready, I feel very frustrated because... Um, I like to keep my commitments, and we agreed with the client it would be ready for tomorrow. So please, could you in the future let me know in advance so that X, Y, Z. Uh, it's a protocol, just like HTTP. <laughs> it's a protocol for conflict management. It's a bit heavy. However, whenever I don't use it, I get into trouble. <laughs> so, uh, so I use it only when my emotions run high. And I, I've seen the change it had in my own life. I mean, and I have now, of course, some quite a, uh, a series of testimonials that it works. And that's what we did here is just like simplify the application of nonviolent communication 
for for project teams. And Satya Nadella, um, you can like look on the internet. What is the first thing he did uh, at his uh, first board meeting at Microsoft? My Microsoft at the time was known for having a toxic culture with a lot of internal competition between teams. And um, he vastly commented that he offered the nonviolent communication book to his board members. And you can look at the results uh, a few years later. Uh, he, he created more than 250 billion value <laughs> just by changing the culture. That was a cheap book, man. That was a good investment, that book. <laughs> a good investment. Again, it's okay to disagree, but not being relationship uh, destructive. And then the last part is um, called, the last tool is called the respect card. There are little attentions in life that make a big difference. And I've noticed that as we are uh, overwhelmed in the vortex of our work, our priorities, running from sprint to sprint to sprint and so on, we forget the very basics of politeness. Uh, should see how people illuminate when you say thank you <laughs> when we've just delivered on time and just like being grateful. <laughs> and that sometimes we, we forget. So in the respect card, it's also a tool you use as a person. It's just a checklist that has been extracted from a body of knowledge called politeness theory. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a division of linguistics where I've presented different ways uh, of uh, showing respect and valuing others. Uh, that's uh, just what lubricates everyday relationship. And, and I think we should do a bit more of that. I thought we'd finish by sharing the brilliant work of Alan Fisk, the anthropologist, because he identified, well, I love how he even says this, the grammar of human relationships in the form of four elementary types of bonds called relationship types. This is also core to your work. This is the science, the science behind the work. It's true. Um, there are um, a couple of scientists that really shaped all the approach and the tool design. We, <clears throat> we entered when we uh, designed the tools and wrote the book. And Alan Fiske is an anthropologist. Um, I believe he's in uh, UCLA, if I'm not wrong. And he spent his life trying to understand the DNA of relationships. And... Um, What I particularly appreciate about his work is that he, um, um, as an anthropologist, he looked at how uh, relationships are managed in different cultures, and he came up with these four playing modes. He looked at, if you wish, relationships from a coordination angle. And the idea is very simple also. Huh? That, that comes, sorry, I'm opening a lot of parentheses here. It also comes from a brief or family therapy. You know, <clears throat> at any moment in time, we humans are always doing two things when we interact with other people. One, we are conducting our business, like now we're doing our interview uh, for the podcast. And second, we are managing the relationship between Stefano and Aidan. Okay, so we, we are always acting at two levels. So it's crucial to look at the second level too, not just focus on the activities. Fiske. Uh, understood that we mostly play with four modes. So one is authority. So I can put myself in authority mode, so I'm going to be the boss, and I'm going to use hierarchical power. The second playing mode is sharing. So what's mine is yours. The third playing mode is uh, transactions. Uh, transacting, so I give you... in. in uh, in uh, exchange, uh, and the other, the last one is called equality matching, where uh, we exchange in equal quantities. Now, he, I think where the, brilliant, the brilliance of his work is, first, in having identified these four playing modes, and two, in having identified that human relationships work when we are all aligned on the same playing mode. Again, an alignment issue. 
So if I go to my doctor and he's in hierarchy mode and I'm the patient, I presuppose he's the boss. I mean, he's my doctor. So it's going to work. Uh, if I go playing with my kids, we're in sharing mode. They share, I share, we're fine. Conflict and emotions arise when we cross playing modes. So let's say uh, you are in authority, you are my boss. Um, I'm in sharing mode. We are at a cocktail party and I come and take food from your plate. <laughs> You're not going to like that. And, you know, but it would have been okay <laughs> if we were both in sharing mode. But when you cross playing mode, emotions run high. And the work of Fiske really um, encouraged me to finalize the work on the team contract. Because when we spend that time aligning, and I know this is a bit uh, a long discussion, uh, you don't need to know all that when you do the team contract, but when, whenever we place a post-it on the team contract and we discuss the team behaviors, how we make decisions, how we communicate, if I prefer to work in certain ways and so on, we are basically aligning our relationship types for decision-making, for working, for communicating. And so that's where we minimize the level of conflict. Beautifully said, man. And uh, the last thing I thought, and, and I'm being selfish here because one of my one of my triggers is a lack of fairness. So if I see a lack of fairness, it drives me crazy. And and it doesn't need to be about me. It's about somebody else as well. It just, uh, I can't get it out of my head. I've tried working on it. But you say that this is a huge part, part to understand what a fair process is because you say valuing and respecting each other are the two key pillars of fairness. Fairness is a crucial foundation on which to grow teams and implement any diversity, equity and inclusion initiative. But what I felt was really important was if you think about a change maker, many of whom you've worked with, or a catalyst within an organization trying to drive change, they often have no bargaining power because they're further down the hierarchy and that makes it much more difficult. So they need to bargain in, you know, delivery or favors, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And often that role can feel unbelievably unfair. So fairness, I thought was an important one to shine a light on. Yes, absolutely. Now, between you and me, next time you feel that a situation is very unfair and you get upset, maybe use the non-violence request. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't say <laughs> anything. Your point. <laughs> you, you'll notice <laughs> an important difference in how people react. Uh, but I, I, I fully agree with you. But you know, um, I've implemented large-scale change uh, in my careers at least two or three times in, in quite large organizations. And when I mean large-scale, it's very like digitalizing a bank or, uh, or launching a big transformation program for a, multi a multinational. And I've always felt that I was not in the right position to do that. I was too down in the hierarchy. And until I met, I remember, um, that Swiss German manager uh, <laughs> that gave me that piece of advice. He, he told me, okay, you think you're too small to make a change in this company? I said, yes. He said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Think of a mosquito in your bed. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to make you move. So <laughs> since then, <laughs> I keep that metaphor in mind. And I believe, again, um, people often, I believe that resistance to change now I completely changed my mind on that. I believe everyone is rational. Um, and I see resistance to change as a lack of mutual clarity. And when I don't understand, I tend to push back. So help me understand your logic. Because you're thrilled to make that change. Why, why shouldn't I be as well if it's good for the company? So help me understand. And for that now, again, there are great tools to help other people understand. Uh, when you talk with leaders, um, um, when I talk with leaders, I don't want to generalize here, they often tell me, yeah, I was presented like three, four projects, but I didn't get the point. And then you go back and talk to the teams. Yeah, hey guys, maybe show the benefits of your project before asking for budget and so on. So I believe we have more power, more influence power than we we think 
I love that, Stefano. A great way to finish today's show. I'm, I'm going to ask you to maybe think of your final message for our audience as I remind them that I have a copy of this beautiful book up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in with a chance of winning that. Stefano, how, if you had a parting message or a tweet of what you do and where people can find you, what would you say to somebody in an elevator pitch? In an elevator pitch? Um... I might say a quote I learned from uh, my dad, actually. Uh, um, uh, today, our strength is in our team. It's the basic unit to deliver anything. And it's good to have some guidance there on techniques and tools that help us be more comp- a more competent team member. Uh, and these, the tools presented in the book are super simple to understand and practice rapidly. And I know a lot of our audience will be familiar with Strategizer, but where can people find you? Where they can they find you online? On Strategizer's website, uh, you will find a page of the book with all the links on all bookstores. Um, it's available on Amazon.com and international editions are just about to come uh, in many different languages. Fantastic. Congratulations. Author of Hype Impact Tools for Teams, five tools to align team members, build trust and get results fast. Stefano Mastro Giacomo, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.